Thanks for joining us at the Business Growth Cafe, where each week we select from a menu of topics for a focused discussion with an industry expert to provide insights that can impact your business's growth with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Hi, I'm Angelo Ponzi, your host here at the Business Growth Cafe, and thank you for joining us. As a business owner, we dream of cashing out one day. I have that dream, and I actually have the opportunity to do that. The big score, well, for me, not so much. The company really worth is the question. Now, as an entrepreneur, I thought my company was worth way more than they were willing to pay me. And also, it happened very quickly for me. But what's the right exit? Should I have been planning all along? Should I, did I really want to be acquired? Did I want to merge? Or maybe, just maybe, I should have sold the company to the employees that were working for me. This is the thought. This is what we're going to talk about today. And at the cafe, I have Chris Kramer, Managing Director of Strategic Equity Group, to discuss ESOPs as an exit strategy. But before we begin, let me take a quick break. Your strategic plans are essential to managing your business's growth. Spend the time to develop a cohesive roadmap to follow to ensure your entire team is moving in the right direction. These plans should take the insights and the brand strategy work you've already completed to help you achieve your long-term business and growth objectives, as well as keep you competitive. These are actionable plans and should include the details of achieving your growth, including tactical implementations, timelines, budgets, and KPIs for success. Developing your plan is a team sport. Make sure you include the stakeholders from each of your strategic departments in your organization because everybody in the company is impacted by the success or failure of your plans. The following are six key questions to ask yourself. Do you have a clear understanding about what you're trying to achieve? Number two, what does your brand stand for in the eyes of your customers? Three, why do your customers buy from you? Four, what are your competitors doing? And five, what is your approach to sales? Where are your opportunities for revenue coming from? And number six, how can you differentiate yourself from your competition? Visit theponzigroup.com to learn more. As I mentioned, I have Chris Kramer with me, Managing Director of Strategic Equity Group to discuss ESOPs as an exit strategy that you should consider. And we're going to talk in depth today. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Angelo. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a, a very interesting. I mean, I when I've talked to people before about ESOPs, uh, typically I get what is what is that. So I usually ask some questions, and I'm going to ask some standard questions that I like to ask of all my guests. But to let's let's take the mystery out of ESOP. What is an ESOP? What the heck is an ESOP? Yeah, great question. So first of all, uh, stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. And it's essentially an exit tool or a succession planning tool that facilitates both the seller being able to cash out a stock, but the employees to get a benefit by doing so. Um, it turns out it was uh, coming, or they came into existence back in 1974. And uh, unfortunately, to some extent, they were uh, legislated in under the uh, pension legislation, which makes them fall under the Department of Labor as far as oversight. But effectively, uh, it's a way to sell the company to, for the benefit of the employees, and, and they get a meaningful benefit. So that's kind of the, the high level. Okay. Well, we're going to dig way into that because that that was a, a great definition. Um, 
but I'm still a little confused. So we're going to dig into that a little bit, but I do like to talk to my guests about their business. So, um, so when you think about growing your business, what keeps you up at night? Well, what keeps me up at night is uh, always finding the right people and retaining them, right? And uh, that's, of course, we'll talk about how this uh, ESOP plan can can help you know any business owner in that way. But it's always uh, a question of can you get people to stay? Can you keep them interested over a long period of time? Can you hire young people and have them be motivated for an entire career, or do you have to suffer through you know them bouncing around, um, or there ways to kind of tie them up? So. That's the big one for me. Do you find that, um, you know, with kind of the uh, uh, millennials coming into the workforce and in the workforce that they, they tend to have a higher turnover? Yeah, you know, it depends. It's funny because I'm actually a big fan of millennials. Um, I'm they call me boomer in the office, actually, and and not not in a in a nice uh, friendly way. They're kind of derogatory, but no. The reason I say that is because um, I've been uh, fortunate to keep and retain uh, my core team for the last five six years. Most of them I got right out of college, and I think the reason is because, in part, uh, we give them a lot of responsibility. We pay them very well. And we treat them like the smart, aggressive, you know, uh, kind of forward-thinking people that they are. And I think they really appreciate that. What, what somebody told me once is the way to keep a millennial engaged is to focus on their personal toolbox. And if you can find ways to give them interesting things to do and, and, and let them and, and facilitate them continuing to, to have their own professional and personal development, you can keep them for quite a while. And so uh, we've fortunately been able to do that successfully. Now, oh, fantastic. Yeah, I know. I've heard, you know, mixed feelings about, you know, kind of hiring millennials. I have three of them. So, um, you know, that they're they get unhappy very quickly. You don't want to work in the office, you know, get disinterested if they can't do their own initiatives, those kinds of things. But, you know, we've been dealing with this. I think the oldest millennials, what, about 33, 34, maybe 35, um, the youngest. Um, I thought my youngest was a millennial. He's actually right on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z. So, uh, but he acts like a millennial. But, but then I said, you know, what what is that act? I think back to when I was younger, and I I did the same thing. I changed jobs every couple of years in the beginning. I got dissatisfied. So I, I see this while we're p- pigeonholing them and describing them a certain way. I. I certainly see uh, reflections of even my own self in my early days of being dissatisfied very quickly because I, my needs weren't being met. Well, yeah, and and look, so very interesting. I, I read a book. Um, I can't recall the title, but it was uh, it was written by the founder of LinkedIn, and he kind of broke employees down into sort of three categories, right? One is what he called the foundational employees, right? Those are those are people that you build your business around, right? And then there are I think he called them situational employees and then one other class of employees. But basically what he said was turnover is not necessarily bad if you have the right, you know, effectively, you know, arrangement or agreement with, with the people that you're surrounding yourself with. If you can launch somebody into a new career and they're only with you for a few years, that doesn't have to be necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we talk about the cost of training and turnover, but if it's an upfront, you know, sort of contract, 
let's face it, you know, new ideas and, and, and other, other uh, you know, perspectives that come in with a new person can be pretty valuable. What really kills a business is when you have a foundational employee that leaves, right? The mm-hmm. person you, you, you built the business around. Th- those are the real tough losses. So uh, the next question is, what's the best business advice you've ever given and or received? Yeah, the best business advice I think I've ever received is hire people smarter than you and, and motivate them and, and let them run. And I've um, yeah, I've been marginally successful at that. Um, it's pretty easy to find people that are smarter than me. It's it's a little harder to <laughs> motivate and retain them. Uh, the best business advice I've ever given: uh, build a balance sheet. I think we talked about that last time uh, we spoke. And uh, you know, capital provides you know flexibility and choice, and and lets you capitalize on opportunities. I, I found that companies and and people that that don't have capital don't have a balance sheet can often make decisions out of necessity. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes those decisions maybe aren't optimal. So uh, I think those would be two. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I look at that, what you just said is I call them, you know, those gut level decisions, but not mm-hmm. necessarily based on the facts or current situations that, you know, to get people out of being more conscious and making rational fact-based database decisions as opposed to these quick gut decisions and, and, and panic modes, especially. Yeah. Or decisions of the heart, as I would call them. Right. And, and, and in other words, I mean, I know myself when I was young, I didn't have money. I a couple of times I was kind of out of work and, and kind of looked for, looked for a job and kind of took one that really wasn't in my wheelhouse or, you know, I wasn't passionate about. And, and it's, it's a terrible life when you're not following at least some amount of your interest level and passion when you're sort of forced into doing something out of necessity. So to the extent that, uh, you know, the balance sheet will provide that flexibility, I think um, it's something that's super important. Yeah. So what's the best compliment you've ever received? Um, The best compliment is probably that I'm uh, thoughtful and I am, um, more of a giver than a taker and I'm generous with my time. I think those, those combined. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. If you could go back in time, we're talking about millennials, but if you could go back in time and tell your 18 year old self something, what would you tell them? What advice would you give yourself? Um, I, well, <laughs> I I'm sure there's a lot we the can't time. talk on air, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I won't go there. Um, I guess I would have, um, I would have focused more on, uh, getting good grades in school and going to the extent I was going to go to college, I would have gone to the best, the best school I could get into versus I kind of poo pooed the, um, the importance of that. Now I think it's, it's not critically important, but it, it's, it's one of those things where if you're going to take the time to to go to school, you might as well, you know, go to the best school that you can. And I think the networking that comes with that, the, the, um, the, the people that you, that you associate with earlier in your life, become your lifelong friends, your colleagues, your business associates later. And I didn't do as good a job when I was young of fostering those relationships. And, and I didn't have a great network out of college because I went to a state school that didn't have, you know, the, the cachet or the, or the, you know, the alumni association. So I'm a big networking, a big fan of networking. I'm, you know, I, I just believe that, that you can't do anything by yourself that you can, you know, you can do better through others. And, um, it, it is a, it is a, a important consideration. Okay. 
So uh, last question I have before we get into the meat of the discussion is, as a business owner and looking at your journey, if your journey was a book, what would the title be? Um, <laughs> the Long Road Home. No, <laughs> um, the title would be of my journey. Um, um, oh, boy. Uh, I think the Long Road Home. I mean, I think um, it could keep at it, keep, keep pecking at it might be the book, might, might keep, keep tweaking. It might be the title of the book. I would say, you know, you're never finished in a business, right? That's the, 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 the great thing. And then, and then the challenging thing, you know, sometimes I just want to go home and not think about work. Right. But it's constantly tweaking. It's, it's just never ending. And that, that isn't, you know, everybody's not cut out for that. Right. I mean, some, some people just can't really do that. And I think that's some part of the reason why some businesses remain, you know, kind of small and, and others, you know, grow, you know, fantastically and thrive as a consultant and owning a consulting business, I've made a conscious decision to keep it relatively small. So everybody that I have working for me is in my office. We all communicate on a daily basis. And, and I've had double the number of employees in the past. And I know when you had your business, you know, you had a number of employees and when you're in a consulting role, um, it's really hard to manage a, a big organization and deliver the consistency and the quality and the, and the customer experience, you know, as it is maybe in, in another business. And so believe me, um, I, 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 I'm constantly trying to get the right formula, but really it's, it's focusing on the people and, and keeping a smaller team to me makes that a little bit easier. So that's kind of what I've done. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I've gotten up to uh, one company. I I was uh, the second in charge. I had 85 employees reporting to me. And I, I remember that just on a daily basis, I was just consumed with employee stuff. Like I actually stopped marketing and doing strategic work. All right. I was doing was employee management. Yeah, I'm right at that point where if I grew more in terms of my headcount, I'd be almost exclusively a manager and I couldn't work with uh, directly with the companies. I couldn't do the consulting that I do. And, you know, a lot of people aren't either cut out for or don't really love managing other people. I think I'm one of those people. I, I, I think I can do it in a small team. I don't think I could be a leader of a division with, you know, a hundred people or 85 or whatever it is. It just wouldn't be what I want to do. So. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to do it either. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's hard enough to man. It's hard enough to manage yourself, much less manage a bunch of other people. Well, that, that is for sure. That is for sure. Um, so let, let's, let's get back into the meat and, and, and we kind of have this definition of, of ESOP, but so, but let's, let's start with, I mean, I, I think in most people's minds and in, in the broad sense of thinking about selling your business, you're, you're thinking about being acquired or just outright selling it and walking away. Or in my case, and, I, and I'm not sure we really talked about this, but uh, so I had a, a creative partner and one day we got a phone call uh, from an agency in Los Angeles that said, I want to buy you and I want to buy your creative partners and we're going to put you together. I mean, timeline. It's like a Monday, we get a phone call. And by Friday, we're like getting ready to sign deals. It happened so fast. You know, I was going to my CPA. It's like, well, we got to do evaluation. I mean, I, I didn't know. It was just out of nowhere. In my mind, it was just something that would never happen because we were an advertising agency and we we're a service business and just never in my mind thought that somebody would want to buy me. But at the end of the day, what they were after were the people and the model and the way we worked 
not necessarily the clients. So that was, you know, one way to go. Obviously, I wish I had planned it a lot bigger. But at the time, I'd never even heard of a, an ESOP. So, so when we look at kind of the alternatives, let's, let's start there. What's the advantages and disadvantages of a traditional cell versus what an ESOP program offers? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, so if, if you think about the universe of exit strategies, right, there's, there's do nothing, which, you know, you'll, you'll have one eventually, as they say, everyone has an exit strategy, whether they know it or not. It's either whether you're planning for it or not, right? Um, there's the family transfer, right? Assuming you have kids or, or others in the business, and that can either be done by, by a sale mechanism or, or, you know, through estate planning by giving it to them, if you will. Um, there's the management team, right? You can sell to the management team. A challenge there usually is that they don't have the money and the, the after-tax uh, nature of how they have to pay for it tends to make that a difficult uh, proposition. Um, and a lot of a lot of business owners, you know, without some other advantage to it, d- don't don't necessarily want to entrust, you know, a long term payout to, you know, to their to their team. Um, the ESOP aside, and we'll get to why they do that in an ESOP versus, let's say, a management buyout. Although, you know, you can sell your management team. But the two, the two third-party types of sales that most people are familiar with is either a strategic buyer, which is going to be either a publicly traded company or a larger competitor for the most part, private or public. And then the notion of a private equity fund or a PE group or a buyout fund. And these are institutional pools of capital that are uh, that are raised to, to for this, this specific purpose to make acquisitions. They'll usually buy what's known as a platform company, and then they'll do what's known as add-on acquisitions. And your company might be a platform, which is sort of the first entree or foray into an industry, or it might be an add-on acquisition. And those two primary types of sales, strategic or private equity, have distinct, in many cases, distinctly different although maybe a little bit blurry now, but distinctly different characters to them. The strategic is usually, uh, uh, the strategic buyer is usually the kind of company that the founder of the business came from in the first place, right? M- most entrepreneurs, they they grow up, they, they they start working at a company, they do something, they learn how to, how to do something, and then they branch out on their own and form their own company. So, you know, a lot of times they don't want to work for a large company, but strategic buyers will often pay a little bit more than the quote unquote financial buyer, uh, which is the, the, the sponsor slash private equity uh, type of transaction. Um, and, and usually they'll, they'll, you know, they'll offer, you know, employment to everybody and, and, and other than working for a large company, um, you know, it's, it's not a bad, it's not a bad way to, to exit. Uh, some companies don't really command a strategic premium, if you will. And so, you know, the notion that it's strategic is, is you know, perhaps uh, questionable. It just sort of depends. And I can give you an example later about a strategic deal that we did. So in addition to ESOP work, we, we represent sellers to third parties as investment bankers, both strategic and private equity. And I'll contrast those in a minute. Um, but but the private equity deal says, okay, we're going we're gonna to borrow a bunch of money. We're going to raise capital, and then we're going to borrow money from a bank, and that, that capital is going to be used to buy your company. And the challenge with a private equity deal is life after the deal, right? Because the, the average tenure of a CEO that sells to a private equity fund is about 18 months. Um, we just closed a deal earlier this year, and already only six months later, all the sellers, there were four primary selling shareholders, all of them are complaining to me about life after the deal. 
there's onerous reporting. These people don't get it. They're not from my industry. They're asking crazy questions. They're making bad decisions. And so the, 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 the notion that you're going to sell to a private equity fund and have a long career post-transaction, but take chips off the table generally doesn't happen. So if you're older and you're ready to quote unquote retire and you don't care so much about life after the deal, private equity fund can be a private equity deal can be a great deal. Um, with an ESOP, by contrast, one of the primary benefits is you're preserving the corporate culture because what we're doing with an ESOP was we're creating the buyer. And by creating the buyer and the buyer is a passive buyer, life after the deal doesn't really change at all from a day-to-day -day perspective. The culture of the business remains intact. And that ends up being a very significant benefit and a significant reason that business owners sell to an ESOP. It was interesting you're talking about strategic. It, it made me thought, think of, of something that happened in my deal is at the end, what they were, the way they positioned us within. So they were a, a billion dollar advertising firm that bought us, which we were not a billion dollars, of course. But what they did is they positioned our new company as anything under 25 million, which they could not afford actually to, to target because it just the economics didn't work out for them. But it worked out really well for us. So they kind of drew a line in the sand so that anything under 25 or 30 million, whatever it was, you guys can have it and go after it. Anything above, we get it. And that was kind of this exchange that if, even if we stumbled on something that was bigger, we had to you know, give it to the parent corporation. So strategically, ultimately, it's probably, you know, I have to say that's probably how we ended up being positioned. Maybe that was their thinking all along, but that's kind of how it all worked out. Mm -hmm. So, so when, and you also made a, a comment that, you know, the culture doesn't change. And, and so the sense that the owners are basically selling and are to the employees, they are probably still involved, right? They're still in their leadership roles and still doing things. So that's what maintains the culture. Is that the right thinking? Well, well, right. And also the, the, the ESOP is quote unquote controlled. The ESOP itself is controlled by a trustee who is a passive investor. It, it would be, it would be similar to, uh, let's say selling to a family office where, where the, the buyer, if you will, has entrusted the, the management team to continue business as usual with no real uh, plan to turn the company to sell it, to flip it or, or any of that. And so the, the team and the, and the culture and the, and the decision-making remain kind of intact. And that, that is the primary you know reason that the culture stays intact, but yeah, you need leadership, right? And so ESOPs are great for business owners that are sort of later career, but maybe not ready to, to actually uh, turn the keys over in, in most transactions. There's some period of time that an owner is required to stick around, right? Either through an employment agreement mm -hmm. or, you know, with escrows or, 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 or other things. So, you know, the, the, it's not like, here's the keys I'm leaving, right? It's usually, but it's usually a pretty short, short period of time, but we've got some sellers of ESOP companies that were, let's say in their, you know, mid to late fifties, early sixties, and, you know, five, seven, 10 years later, they're still working there. But, but that's a function of what they want to do, not a function of what they have to do. Right. Okay. So it provides maximum flexibility there. How long does a, a typical transition, if you will, during an ESOP uh, program where where that the employees are basically 100 percent of ownership? Yeah. So that's a that's a, a, a different question um, altogether. So and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but 
basically the way it works is the company gets sold to the trust, which is the, 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 the legal entity that gets formed. And the trustee is, is the person that's actually quote unquote in charge of the trust. And the employees are the beneficiaries of the trust. So, you know, seller sells the company to the trust or the trustee. Now, the first thing I would tell you is the company or the seller can sell a hundred percent or the seller can sell something less. This is another thing that makes ESOPs both unique, flexible, and in some ways, very attractive to a seller because you don't have to sell the whole company. See, a lot of business owners want to give a little back to their employees. They want to take some chips off the table and they'll sell a partial interest to the employees and then only sell the remaining uh, amount later on, three, five, seven years later. So, so it just depends. So, so what happens is there's a financing uh, aspect to it where the ESOP doesn't have any money at the close of the transaction. So where does the money come from? Either some of it's borrowed from a bank, the company itself might have some uh, cash to, to use in the transaction, and or the seller is gonna finance the transaction. And so as that loan gets repaid, the shares get allocated to the employees and they realize the benefit. So that can happen over a short period of time or a long period of time. But but going into into this kind of deal, is it defined this is going to happen over X number of years? I mean, I, I assume there's some guidelines that are established. Yeah, it's all by it's all by contract. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a slight difference or, or in some ways a, a material difference between the seller's financing of the transaction between himself and the company, i.e. how quickly does the seller get paid? And then on the other side, how quickly do the benefits accrue? or inure to the participants. And you can have those be different time periods. And there's some good reasons to have them different. One of the reasons is sometimes you have a growing company where you want to make sure that the benefits are going to last, uh, the, the ability to, to deliver the benefits in the form of the company stock will last for many years, as opposed to if all the employees that work there today got all the stock, then anybody new that was hired next year, the year after, the year after that wouldn't necessarily get the same, you know, the same ownership, if you will. Okay. So. And then it's also whatever the, and then the vesting period. So you just don't get all your stock tomorrow and walk out the door and get your so, cash. Yeah. So just to back up for a second. So the way an ESOP works, and, and, I, and again, I mentioned earlier that it was, it was uh, basically legislated into existence through the pension law called ERISA back in 1974. And so that's the same pension law that, that basically gave rise to 401ks. And so an ESOP, operates a lot like a 401k from the standpoint of the rules. So you have vesting, you have eligibility, you have, you know, you can't discriminate, you know, you got testing, you got, you got a bunch of that stuff, right? But it's different than a 401k plan in two primary and very important ways. The first is it's exempt from the diversification rules of a 401k. So if you're a business owner and you provide 401k to your employees, you got to give them seven or 10 different investment options. And, you know, you got to have a bond fund and a, you know, stock fund and everything in between. With an ESOP, you are permitted to only invest, the ESOP is permitted to only invest in the company's stock, right? So it's a concentrated position. That's that's an important distinction. But the, the bigger one and the, and the one that really makes it work is that the ESOP, the trust itself, can borrow money. And, and in no other place is that true. And so that facilitates the sale between the ESOP and the selling shareholder, whether the money is borrowed from the bank or whether 
the seller finances it. And by the way, Angela, there's there's a bunch of different um, ways that you can actually affect an ESOP other than that. You can contribute stock to an ESOP and get a tax deduction. You can contribute cash to the ESOP and have that ESOP build that cash to use later. So what some uh, business owners will do is they'll form an ESOP today. They won't do a deal with the ESOP, but they'll fund it right as a retirement benefit. And then a year, two, three, four years later, when the stock price has risen or when they're ready to actually affect a transaction, they'll do the sale transaction to the ESOP. So there's a lot of different ways you can skin the cat, so to speak. All right. So you said something interesting, talked about the, is the, the value of the stock increases. So obviously you're doing, and, I, and this is your company as well, doing some sort of valuation on the company, which determines the, the share price. And so I, I assume you're doing this on an annual basis because then that determines what the value of the company is, if you will, and in the shares that are in the ESOP. Right. So, so technically, the way it works is that this is an this is a transaction uh, again, not unlike a third party sale, except we create the buyer, and the buyer is called this ESOP or the trust, actually. So, in, in a transaction, there's two parties to the transaction, right? The buyer and the seller. So, if you're a business owner and you want to put an ESOP in place, then you're the seller, right? So, you need a team of advisors a small handful, but a team of advisors to help you affect the ESOP. So that would be myself, uh, corporate slash ERISA counsel to draft the documents. And you'd want to consult with some of your other advisors, but we would put together similar documentation as we would in a third party sale. So there'd be a selling memorandum or, or an information memorandum. We would do some modeling around what the ESOP impact would be on the selling shareholder, on the company on the employees would do all that. And then if all the lights are still green, business owner wants to go forward. Then we go to the implementation phase, which means now we have to figure out the other side of the transaction. That would be the trustee side or the buy side. So a trustee gets appointed. They have their own appraiser, if you will, or financial advisor. They might have their own attorney, etc. And basically then there's a negotiation, not unlike in a third party deal, around the price and the other terms. Once the deal gets consummated, there's an annual requirement for evaluation opinion every year such that the stock price gets established and when people leave the company, you cash them out at the latest valuation that was performed. So from, from you know, and we do work both on the buy side and the sell side, obviously not in the same deal, but we have right now about 100 um, annual valuation clients that we service ESOP owned companies. And it's a beautiful thing as a consultant because it's a legal, it's a legal requirement that they hire somebody. And it's kind of like your audit or tax return. You don't change your auditor every year. You don't change your, you know, the person that does your taxes every year. So that becomes kind of an annuity. And on the other hand, from the company's perspective, it does create the need for an annual expense, right? I mean, it's not cheap to administrate these things, but it also, uh, you know, separates the, the, the kind of, uh, the, 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 well, to separate, the, you know, it, it, it creates a formality, if you will, and a structure where you've got legal documents, it's all binding. There's, you know, oversight by the department of labor, there's a trustee involved. So it's a legitimate, you know, arm's length, uh, kind of a situation, by the way, there's probably six, maybe 7,000 ESOP owned companies right now in the country. Okay. So it's not a black box. It's not a new thing. It's been around since 74, uh, it's a pretty interesting uh, kind of ecosystem, if you will. 
Have you seen the trend? Have you seen this growing? I mean, obviously that's 7,000 is not a ton, yeah. but have you yeah. seen over the last several years or any kind of trending that yeah. more people are turning to this? Yeah, it sort of ebbs and flows. I mean, I think it, it sort of generally follows the, you know, the demographics and, and sometimes it follows tax. Um, back in, uh, I think it was the early 2000s, S-Corps could become ESOPs. Um, so that, that created a little bit of a spike, if you will. Um, and, and by the way, it does not preclude you from selling to a third party at any point, uh, all or part. So, the, you know, there's, again, maximum flexibility. But I would say uh, we're seeing an uptick um, probably the last three, four years, um, five years, I would say. But but it's also offset by ESOP companies that sell or ESOP companies that decide, you know, that they no longer want the ESOP, which is pretty pretty small. But, um, you know, there's there's sort of natural attrition as well. But the, but the numbers are, I think, growing over the last four or five years. Now, when you think about becoming an ESOP, I mean, is it is it every company that could? I mean, what's a typical company that makes a good candidate for an ESOP? And what's a company that doesn't make a good candidate? Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, a good candidate would be a company that maybe doesn't have a giant strategic premium out in the market. In other words, um, you, you are going to get what we would call full fair market value in a transaction with an ESOP. So you're going to get fairly compensated as a business owner, as a seller, but you're not going to get a huge premium. So I did a deal a couple of years ago, kind of your um, example, Angela, where the, the, the company was approached and, you know, shortly thereafter, they're, they're on their way down the altar, you know, like didn't know what hit them, so to speak. And I helped them sell the company. It was, it was also similar to your a situation where the public company buyer already had a product line, but this was a premium product and they wanted to get into the premium uh, uh, segment of their business. And there weren't very many ways to do that other than buy this company. So we ended up selling that company for about a 12 and a half EBIT multiple, which is just astronomical. I mean, it rivaled the publicly traded multiple, if you will. That could never have happened in an ESOP because an ESOP is primarily cash flow driven. And it's hard to get a 10 multiple in an ESOP deal. It just is. It can, it can happen, but it's pretty rare. Oh, so what makes a good candidate? So, so, so number one, if you don't have a giant premium out there and your value expectations are reasonable, uh, that, that's, a, that's a net positive. Uh, more payroll is better. So more labor-intensive businesses tend to make e uh, better ESOP candidates than than not. And the reason is there are some payroll limitations that drive the deductibility of the contributions and some of the technical back, you know, back end stuff. So if you had a, if you had a business with an operating facility um, or a bunch of machines running and no people, th those are a little bit harder to do. Um, and then, and then, you know, really it's, it's about the, the seller and their, and their belief system around the employees and how valuable they are. And if you believe your employees are valuable, and you've already got a good corporate culture, um, then I'd say an ESOP, you know, is something that you might consider. Tell me some stories. I like stories. So give me some examples of, of companies that, that became ESOPs and kind of the advantage, disadvantages, the pros and cons, things that didn't go well. I mean, let's, let's do some examples that, uh, that put it in perspective now. We've heard a lot about what an ESOP is, how to form it, how it works. Now let's let's have a few examples of those in some uh, we're storytellers. Let's tell a story. 
Yeah. So one, one, one is a great example. Um, and that's a, a client that I landed, um, oh, probably 20 years ago, maybe 22 now. Um, the ESOP was formed and um, the company continued to grow. And to this day now, it's doing over 300 million in revenues with you know many hundreds of employees and the earlier employees and the later ones, but certainly the earlier ones um, have gotten, you know, six and, and a couple of them, seven figure account balances. So these are, these are people that, you know, maybe were decent wage earners, but they weren't, you know, CEO level, they weren't making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And yet they have, you know, many hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of dollars in their retirement account, far more than they would have had, uh, for example, uh, than, you know, let's say in their 401k, if you will. Some number of household names that are ESOPs here locally, a couple of our clients, um, uh, Armstrong Garden, that's an ESOP-owned company, mm-hmm. uh, Howard's Appliances, a couple of retailers that you might have heard of. Um, there's a few, um, uh, one a produce distributor we have, the Melissa's brand. If you're a, a kind of a foodie and you're in the in the specialty area of the produce section, you see the little carrot logo. Um, they've been a wild success story. Um, you know, where they, where they go a little sideways, I would say, is if you – if you have uh, an overvaluation, right? Uh, if you have a cyclical business, there are instances where, you know, the companies were were in some financial distress, you know, shortly after the transaction. I would argue that um, a lot of that had to do with overvaluation. Um, we have a couple of clients that are kind of struggling, and the ESOP isn't really um, providing the benefits or the 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 uh, juice, if you will, that people expected primarily because the company's not performing and, and frankly, they don't communicate it that well. Um, there's a knock on ESOPs because they're what I would call egalitarian. The way that the shares get allocated are by uh, through payroll. So if you make 100 and I make 50, you get twice the allocation, okay? But if you make 100 and I make 100, we get the same allocation. Now, we may both be important to the company, but we all know that compensation doesn't always address how valuable you are to the corporation. And you may be highly motivated by a share price that's increasing in your retirement fund. And the person in the, in the office next year's might not even care about it or know about it. And so, you know, there are, there are instances where the, the company just doesn't really get a lot of benefit out of the, out of the, the ESOP because it's hard to get the employees motivated to, you know, perform differently or better because of the ownership. Most companies, what they do on the other hand, though, is they brand themselves employee owned. They have a good, strong culture. They're empowering their employees to, you know, to, to be, you know, effectively mini owners, if you will. And the companies do perform better. The stats would tell you that ESOP companies perform better. They lay people off less frequently. They suffer financial distress less often. They they are they generally you know grow faster than you know than their than their competitors. You know one of the the big complaints I always have with a lot of the organizations I, I do and have worked with is the internal culture. Is they just don't communicate. I mean I've walked down the hallways and literally talked to senior staff and asked them what they thought of the new strategies or the new campaigns and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I would imagine with an ESOP that internal communications, to your point, motivating the employees that, hey, you do better, company does better, you make more money technically in your retirement. And and so if that culture doesn't exist, I mean, part of the benefit of an ESOP gets lost, I would imagine. 
Well, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the way I say it, it doesn't it doesn't replace culture. It it sort of you know enhances or augments culture. You know, it's kind of like you know alcohol. I have a, a, a fond of saying alcohol doesn't create somebody's character; it reveals it, right? And, and so you know, if you have a company where you don't have a good culture, um, you could say the same thing about golf. By the way, um, if you don't have a you know if you don't have a strong culture, right? You don't have a, a, a participatory. Oh, the other thing you asked about what makes a good a good uh, ESOP candidate, I, I would I, I use the word participatory management structure, not a democracy, but participatory, right? I think the best corporate structure is a benevolent dictator, right? Somebody in charge, but somebody that you know cares about everybody. And so, consulting firms, service businesses, where there's there's already engagement and involvement by a senior team, make good candidates. And so, co- you know, contrast that with when it is an autocrat, you know, one person in charge and they're not communicating very well. I've got clients, you, you could ask half the employees, they don't even know there's an ESOP. You, you know what I mean? So people have used it as a tax strategy, as a, you know, as a, as a, a way to, to minimize tax or other things and not really a benefit level or, or not even really an exit strategy. In some cases, there, there are things you can do with an ESOP that that maybe you know uh, focus on one or, or or more of those at the expense of another, and so it, it's all over the map. You know, other clients, as I mentioned, they brand themselves employee owned, and every employee drinks the Kool Aid, right? And they're they, they're proudly displaying it on their, you know, on their uniform or or on their on their truck or on their on their you know, on their logo on their letterhead. So it, it's just all over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like it, it's leadership. It's you know management and how they how they do all that. What's the what's some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen with companies that are looking or implementing an ESOP that 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 they make in in putting their their programs together? Yeah, I think trying to do it, you know, kind of on the cheap and not really uh, uh, getting good advisors. And the reason I say that is because it's very complicated. And what I what I hear often is that. I didn't know that that's how it worked or nobody told me that this was the impact or, you know, I didn't know I was supposed to follow up on these things, you know, post transaction. And so when you, when you, you know, it's complicated uh, uh, to the point where you got to have good advisors. That's number one. Number two, I think, um, you know, communicating the, the, the ESOP and, and communicating the benefits that that's number two. And then number three, I think is is really um, how they're structured, and and there's a way to structure them so that the owner gets what he needs and wants, and yet the company's able to to um, thrive, you know, despite you know, admittedly, a, a fairly significant debt load in many cases. So you don't want to overburden the company, but at the same time, uh, you know, the seller has options, right? And so a seller can sell to a third party, to a strategic, as we mentioned, or he can sell to an ESOP. So you've got to give the seller benefit, you know, you got to give the seller incentive to choose an ESOP over another structure or strategy and, you know, preserving the culture and, and being a good guy and, and giving employees some benefit. That's all great, but a business owner has choices, right? And, and so you've got to make sure that you, you address, you know, his or her needs as well. Okay. What, what do you think is, is something that's, you know, potential, people engaging with you, what, what is the thing that they might misunderstand about your business and your offerings that, that, uh, you, you've had to kind of help clarify? Yeah. The, the, the biggest one is, the, is really, uh, what is an investment banker and what does an investment banker do? 
And and investment banking to me means um, sort of the the capital of the business as opposed to uh, let's say secured lending, which would be commercial banking, if you will. And so they don't really understand uh, that we can do both buy side and sell side. We make acquisitions or help companies make acquisitions. We represent sellers. And we also provide valuation opinions as a discrete service. Valuation, the way I describe it is in 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 the investment banking side of the business is kind of the starting point for everything. And a valuation opinion for ESOP or other purposes is a product in and of itself and becomes the endpoint uh, in that way. So we've had lots of instances where, you know, a client would say, oh, I hired an investment banker. And it's like, well, but we're investment bankers. Well, yeah, but we know you to do the valuation, not to sell the company. And I would also tell you that there, there are not that many firms that do both, right? Because they're mm-hmm. kind of different, even though they're related and, 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 and similar in many ways. Part of it is the fee model tends to be different in investment banking than valuation. Valuation tends to be a fee for service. Investment banking tends to be, you know, success fee oriented. So I would say, um, uh, you know, lack of clarity with the, with the companies that we can sell their company even though we quote unquote just did a valuation for them, you know, last year. Sure. Well, I find a lot of times in, in, in that, and I won't pick on you, but businesses tend to be known or focus on a particular product or service and not do a good job in broadening out all their capabilities. And I, and I personally have been guilty of that myself. Um, I, I was, I think I probably mentioned in the past that I've been, was in the action sports industry and I, I had quantitative studies that I was pushing all the time. And so I remember sitting down with this this company and we were talking about implementing a quantitative study. And he looks at his watch and says, oh, I've got to end this meeting because I have the qualitative guys coming in. And I said, well, what do you mean you got qualitative? I, that's what I do. I, and they right. said, we had no idea. You've never mentioned right. it. And he was yeah. right. I, I never mentioned yeah. it ever. I, I, I'm fond of saying, and I, and I, I hope I, I get to the point, and maybe with your help, Angela, that I can stop saying this, which is I've been successful in spite of poor marketing, not because of good marketing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, well, it, it, it's it, this this topic is kind of we're starting to wind it down, but it's interesting. I did a survey with some CEOs here in Orange County about a year ago. And part of it was, would your clients recommend you? Yes, of course, 95%. I'm making up the numbers, but 95% said yes. Uh, do they understand your product that you sell them? Yes. Do they understand all of the products and services that you sell? It was complete opposite. Like 95% said no. Right. And I said, think about all the opportunities you're, you're, you're losing out on. All you have to do is one more product or service that's extended. And so I think that becomes a, just a general difficulty for companies. Once they're in, they tend to focus on that retention work and forget about other things that are going on. Yeah, absolutely. So before we sum it up, one more question. What gets you out of bed every day? What inspires you to get up and do what you do? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and I think it's a pretty easy answer, actually. And it's it's why I think I've been in the business as long as I have. And that is um, hearing people's stories. You know, I, I get to, 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 to work with literally hundreds of business owners every year. Sometimes they're the same, but, but you know, many times uh, different ones. And everybody's got a different story. Everybody's got a different way to make money. Everybody's providing a different, you know, service or product in the market. And I'm never, I never cease to be 
fascinated by how many different ways there are to make money in the U.S. and 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 in the world. It's just amazing, and it and it changes, right? Mm-hmm. And and just seeing the the flexibility and the adaptation, and being in the ESOP business, uh, I've I've had the the benefit of seeing some of our our companies' performance over twenty and twenty five years, and so to think and see where a company was and where they ended up, and and, and we're always predicting the future, by the way, right? All business owners, but in, in valuation and investment banking, so we're we're saying, okay, here's what we think is going to happen after five years. Well, we get to look back uh, over the past five years and see if it actually happened, and that's that's pretty fun, actually. Yeah. So it's a lot like school, but 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 you get paid for it. So if you if you like school, you'd like this work. If you hated school, you'd probably think I'm crazy. So, <laughs> all right, well. This has been a, a fascinating conversation and certainly focused on on ESOPs. But kind of in, in ending, I want to let you have the opportunity to tell the listeners anything about your business that, that we kind of didn't touch on. I know we've got into ESOPs quite heavily and we talked about valuations, talked about investment banking, and then ultimately how they can reach you and how they can connect with you for, uh, for more information if they're interested in uh, talking about e- becoming an ESOP. Yeah, no, yeah. I guess the um, and actually we're doing some some internal rebranding and and hopefully that'll be outbound soon. But one of the things that we kind of landed on as a as a little bit of a of a moniker is that there there are many possible outcomes to a transaction, but there's usually one right result. There could be more than one right result, but we feel like we get to the right result, and we feel like we're pretty good at at kind of sifting through all the noise and, and focusing on the key issues and, and addressing uh, what works really for everybody. Obviously, we keep the interests of our client, uh, primary you know client in mind, but it doesn't do any good for me to be solely focused on your interests and ignore the interests of all the people that will be impacted by whatever it is we're doing. So I, I pride myself on really getting to the right, the right answer, the right place, if you will, after considering all the issues. Um, as far as reaching me, yeah, we're in Orange County uh, near John Wayne Airport. We've got uh, phone and email, and um, I can give those out, or is that is that what you want? Or Go ahead. Yeah, so the phone number is 714-380-3300, and that's my direct line. And you can reach us on, on the web at segco.com, and um, we'd love to chat with you. Okay. And you're on LinkedIn and all that good stuff. I'm on LinkedIn as well. That's right. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This has been a fantastic conversation and I want to thank you for joining us at the cafe today. If your business needs a CMO or other senior marketing leadership, but you're not quite ready for a full-time person yet, connect with me or find out more about my fractional interim of consulting services at theponzigroup.com, as well as a variety of resources you can tap into blogs, videos, eBooks, all that good stuff, or certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. And lastly, if you're a subscriber, thank you. And if you're not a subscriber, I encourage you to do so, so you can get this great content like we heard today, or certainly share it with others. You can go to the businessgrowthcafe.com, or you can find us on any major podcast platform. And don't forget, join me next week at the Business Growth Cafe. And Chris, thank you so much. Thank you, Angelo. Thank you for listening to today's discussion at the Business Growth Cafe with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and visit our website at www.businessgrowthcafe.com.
Read Angelo Ponzi's blogs at www.theponzigroup.com.